Hey, you here? Are you with me? Are you with us? Listening in to the Paul Leslie Hour? Yes, you are. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to our interview from the archives with Steve Jordan. Now, this was a phone interview, and listening to this landline telephone sound just may make you feel nostalgic. Now, who is this guest we're about to hear from? Well, Steve Jordan, drummer, percussionist, composer, record producer, And now Steve Jordan's frequently known for accompanying well-known artists, both on stage as a sideman and in the recording studio. He's backed artists like Eric Clapton, Stevie Wonder, the Rolling Stones. And along with Pino Palladino, Jordan performs with the John Mayer Trio. Yeah, he was also a founding touring member of the Blues Brothers Band, featuring Dan Aykroyd and the late John Belushi. Also of interest, Steve Jordan was a founding member of the world's most dangerous band, which backed Paul Schaefer on Late Night with David Letterman on NBC from 1982 to 1986. Now, keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, that we appreciate every, every like, every share, every comment, but one big deal, yeah, every contribution. Just visit us at www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. You can give yourself and others the gift of stories. Thank you. Hey, I think it's time to hear that phone call with the legendary drummer Steve Jordan. Let's listen together. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce this man, Grammy Award winning Steve Jordan. Pleasure to be here, Paul. How do you define Steve Jordan? <laughs> I guess, oh, that's a good question. Somebody who's passionate about music and life in general. Very fortunate individual. A person who doesn't take anything for granted, I guess. I hope that kind of shows in the work that we do. If we could go back in the Jordan household, when you were growing up, what would we see? We would see, first of all, two amazing parents that I owe everything to. My mother, Gloria Lorraine Jordan, a musical person, incredible homemaker, and later educator, and she got a master's degree in gerontology later on, and just a very active, determined, supportive, wonderful person. And then my father, Horace Rudine Jordan, who is an architect, worked for the city of New York, and a very driven by work ethic, a very strong work ethic, and once again, very supportive. He used to drive me around to gigs and kind of nothing like having an architect be a roadie. <laughs> an amazing guy. The two of them together were so dynamic, elegant, fantastic, that it was incredible to grow up in that household. I had a younger sister who was very talented as well. It was pretty cool. Pretty cool. We grew up in the Bronx, the Northeast Bronx. At that time, it was kind of a pretty cool melting pot, different cultures, and it was an exciting time. Music was always playing in the house, excuse me, whether it was pop music or, in a particular case, my father being a jazz fanatic. It was always Miles Davis being heard in the house, and then also, you know, the Beatles and Motown and Stax and stuff, so James Brown and Sly and the Family Stone. So there was a lot of, of music being played, and my father had a wonderful sound system, and, and you know, we just really, really appreciated that type of stuff in that era, you know, the civil rights 
Can you remember the first album that you bought with your own money? The first album that I ever owned was still one of my favorite albums. It was Peter Gunn by Henry Mancini. That is still one of the, the greatest recordings, in my opinion, ever made. And it's kind of a beacon for me when I do musical directorial ships, when I'm working doing the Emmys with Don Misher or Kennedy Center or anything like that. I, I always have that in the back of my mind. Henry Mancini's work, Quincy Jones's work, that kind of stuff. The first single I ever owned was, I think, Yakety Yak by The Coasters, which was one of my favorite. Charlie Brown and Yakety Yak were two of my favorite records as a kid. And I started collecting records very, very young. I think by at the age of two or three, I started getting 45s. My parents would buy me stuff. And according to them, I knew how to operate the not only the record player, but also I knew what records I was putting on before I could read. Now, I think the reason why is because I, I kind of have kind of this kind of photographic memory kind of thing. And of course, labels at that time are very easily recognizable. And I guess even you could tell by the font because there was, they had the fonts on certain tunes. So I think that's how I was able to recognize, okay, even though it was a Motown label, I could tell if it was a Four Tops record that I wanted to play or a Supremes record I wanted to play or something like that. I think that's how that came about. But I just was banging on pots and pans from a very early age and, and listening to records. You said banging on pots and pans. So were you pretty much always a drummer? Uh, yes, that was definitely the first, uh, that's the anchor to everything that I do. Even when I stopped playing for a while and started playing other instruments, excuse me, when I came back to really devoting myself to the drums, I got an even deeper appreciation of the drums. My father told me, I guess when I was about seven years old, seven or eight years old, he said, if you learn how to play Art Blakey's Blues March, you'll be able to navigate all types of drumming in different styles. And even though he wasn't a musician, everybody thought he was a musician. And he had a very keen sense of what was important in music or what touched people in music. And he was right, because that particular piece of music, obviously Art Blakey swung like no other person swung, so you know it was swinging. But his technique, his hands, so to speak, were fluid, not over-technical, just really steady and played extremely melodic. It wasn't just all based on technique, so he had the perfect combination. And so, you know, there you have it. Take us back. What was it like as a very young man meeting Stevie Wonder and also being a part of his band? First of all, let me just clarify. I never was in Stevie Wonder's band, but I got a chance to hang out with Stevie Wonder. It was a long, it's a long story. I'll try to make it as short as possible. During Songs in the Key of Life, Going into the secret life of Plant, he was auditioning drummers, and there was a drummer that played on the song, the songs in the key of life, besides himself, named Raymond Pounds. For some reason, they were auditioning other drummers to see if they could get somebody to replace Raymond, even though Raymond played great, and I really didn't understand it to this day. But at any rate, they were auditioning people from all over the country. I met a lot of people. I was still in high school. I was working at the percussion cage at Bill's Music, Bill's Rentals, which used to be prior to Studio Instrument Rentals. That was the place. So anyway, I'm hanging out, working in the percussion cage. Bill, who was a wonderful gentleman, tried to get me an audition, but I was too young. So I wasn't able to audition, but I met a lot of people. And to make a long story short, at the end of the audition, Raymond retained his job, but then they let me jam. They let me play with Stevie. And at the time, fusion music was really at its apex. And 
that Herbie Hancock was doing. All that stuff was on Stevie's fingertips, so to speak, and mine as well. So I got a chance to play We Jam, and he went into like this Return of Forever tune, which I knew like the back of my hand. He was shocked, and everybody was like, whoa. So even though I didn't get the job, I became like a little mascot. They let me hang out with them. So they were going into the studio. They were at the Hit Factory, and they let me hang out. And it was like being Cinderella. I was living in the Bronx, didn't have any money or anything, just enough to take the subway in. And I'd be hanging out with Stevie Wonder and the band Wonder Love, which at the time, Nathan Watts had joined the band, who's still his musical director on bass. Michael Cimbello was on guitar. It was just an amazing situation. Greg Fillingames had just joined. I was in the room when Stevie Wonder was. Fillingames was introduced to Stevie Wonder. Just an amazing uh, situation. So I'd be hanging out with Stevie Wonder and the band in the studio watching studio technique and just I'm a kid I'm in the studio this is incredible it's like it's a dream and then I'd get on the the, the train the subway home and and get home It, it was truly a Cinderella type of situation from that moment on I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life Stevie Wonder was an incredible human being and so sweet to me that it was just crazy. I just, I I couldn't believe it. I have deep love and respect for him. So that was when I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So the very first session I ended up recording was with a guy who used to play with Stevie Wonder named Danny Morales, who was a tennis sax player. My first session was at Electric Lady Studios, Studio B, and the band was Nathan Watts on bass, Carlos Dalamar on guitar from David Bowie fame, who co-wrote the song Fame, and Michael Cimbello on guitar as well. So it was half a Stevie's band, plus Carlos and myself. And so I think that's where the whole thing about me playing in Stevie's band came up. That's a clarification of that story. Yes, I was very much involved with them, but I was never really an official band member. What about playing in the Saturday Night Live band? How did that come about? Uh, that came about... I was playing, I was starting to get some calls. I was on the second or third call. All the musicians in New York are incredible, you know, and so the A-team was like Steve Gadd, Rick Murata, Chris Parker, these guys. And I was just coming up, starting to get some jobs when these guys couldn't make it. I'd I'd get to play, be something for these guys. And there was a snowstorm in New York back in the late 70s that really crippled the city. And some of these guys lived out of town. And I lived in Chelsea. So this is when the studio scene was just bursting with work. You could do six, seven sessions a day if you were lucky. It was really incredible combination of actual records and uh, commercials, which we call jingles. During the storm, I was able to really do a lot of work because a lot of the guys who lived out of town couldn't make it in. And I got to play, and a lot of people liked what I was doing. John Tropez had a band. He put together a band. It wasn't really a band. It was just a band comprised of all the top studio musicians. And he had done a solo album. And the hook to this album was that Steve Gadd played in the left speaker. Rick Murata played in the right speaker. And he had a, a gig at the bottom line, which no longer exists anymore. But it was a great venue. A lot of great music was there. Rick Murata couldn't do the job. So I was recommended because a lot of these guys that said, well, this kid is pretty good. You should check him out, see what happens. So the day before the show, we had a rehearsal at Carol's Music. I'll never forget it, where I'm playing opposite Steve Gadd, who's a hero of mine, and I could hardly hold the sticks. It was a disaster. The rehearsal was an absolute disaster. And I thought, oh, my God, I was just so nervous. So the showtime comes the following evening, and I'm setting up, and Steve is setting up, and people are filing in, and I hear people in the audience kind of grumbling, like, who's this guy here? I thought, 
Eric Murata was going to be playing. Who is it? And murmuring and everything. I go, oh my goodness, this is incredible. This is, oh my God. And the show starts, and the adrenaline kicked in because it was a do or die situation. It was like game seven. I just played better than I ever played ever. That tonight I got the job for Saturday Night Live because Steve Gabb was just too busy to do Saturday Night Live. He was just too sought after. So he couldn't, he never knew what he was going to be doing or where he'd be. So he couldn't come into the job. I was asked to do the job from that show, and it changed my life. Tell us about being a member of the world's most dangerous band, the First House Band, Late Night with David Letterman. Well, basically, the show, the band was Paul, Will, Hiram, myself. Paul, I asked Paul to produce a band that I was in called the 24th Street Band, which consisted of Clifford Carter on keyboards and vocals, Hiram Bullock on guitar, Lily on bass and myself. Paul and I had forged a really cool friendship from playing together in the Saturday Night Live band going into the Blues Brothers band. Especially during the Blues Brothers band, we really became pretty close musically because we had the same type of love for certain types of music. When Paul was asked to put together a band, I, they came to me and I said, well, why don't we just get the guys? I mean, we already have bands. Our band was basically breaking up, or we had just broken up. Like, well, look, if we get Hiram and Will, we're ready to go, because it's a band. He agreed, and then we started We started playing. We, was, we used to rehearse in my home. It was a great vehicle for us to play a lot of the music that we love, because we, we love all 50s rock and roll, rockabilly, obviously R&B. So we just picked our favorite tunes, basically. We hit the ground running, because we were already prime. Like I said, the three of us had played before together on a regular basis. Hiram was a phenomenal guitar player, as we know. Willie Virtuoso, not only bass player, but an all-around musician. Paul and I had worked together, like I said. So we had a thing, our musical dialogue was at a very high level. We became kind of the focal point of the, of the show because people were just blown away by the band from the very first episode. In fact, one of the great things about being so visible at the time was that there was never a four-piece, there had never been a four-piece band on television every night before. That's the first time that was ever done. So that was great. We received a mailgram from the great Tony Williams on the day after our first show congratulating us. And I thought, well, there you have it, because Tony Williams is my hero. <laughs> well, that was an incredible acknowledgement from somebody who was speaking. I mean, he raised, he set the tone for me individually as a musician. He was playing with Miles when he was 17. So my goal was to do something really of a high level by the time I reached 17. Now, I was doing some stuff at 17, but not playing with Miles Dave, but I did get the job for Saturday Night Live when I was 18, 19 years old, so I, I was a couple of years off. Our special guest is drummer Steve Jordan. Not only have you performed with a lot of great artists on The Letterman Show, but you've recorded and toured with a lot of great artists, everyone from Neil Young to Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, John Mayer, Don Henley, Cat Stevens, B.B. King... Patty Austin, Stevie Nicks, Cheryl Crow, Alicia Keys, Bruce Springsteen, James Taylor, the list goes on and on. Could you pick one or two favorite artists that you've worked with? Well, playing with Neil Young was pretty amazing because I got a chance to not only play with him in the studio at a very critical time in his career, but we also, during the making of Landing on Water, we lived together for a couple of, for a week or two off and on. So one night, you know, he had a place in Malibu and we'd go out there. And one night I found myself sitting down 
writing a song with Neil Young, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting, you know, we're sitting in the living room, and I got an acoustic guitar, and he's got a guitar, and I'm like, holy cow, like I'm writing a song with Neil Young. This is insane. I can't believe it. So there's that, and of course, working on Keith Richards' solo album and befriending Keith, who is a dear friend. I mean, that when you're friends with people, like, sometimes you don't realize exactly what's actually happening because everybody, we're all just human beings, okay? If you treat somebody differently than a human being, well, then you're not, you're belittling the whole relationship and yourself and human nature in general. So you, people just want you to be natural around them. When you're asked a question like that, well, this is a, just a human being and a very wonderful human being considering how everybody else treats them because they're all, these people are treated differently. The celebrity and all of that kind of makes for a very kind of tricky situation for them. I could say that they're good friends and they didn't hesitate to share their knowledge with me. I mean, I mean, Keith gave me guitar lessons and because he saw that I wasn't going to put down the guitar, I was always going to keep playing it. So he said, well, I might as well teach this guy some stuff so that I can actually bear this. So, and that's been great. And I learned a lot about songwriting as well uh, from him. Those two things in particular those two individuals in particular jump out at me, but I have had so many wonderful experiences that they're hard to kind of number, and it keeps getting better every day. I mean, I, I'm very fortunate to play with the people I'm playing with currently. Right now, I'm working with my wife, Megan Voss, who's a great musician, and we have a band called The Verbs. We're both classical, classically trained musicians, and, and of course, she had a couple of girl bands back in the day, the Pop-Tarts and the Antoinettes, and she was like the queen of CBGBs for a while there, and I always wanted to get a band in the CBGBs, and I could never get one to actually get in there, could never put one together, so it, we have that kind of thing where she's done stuff that I've wanted to do and, and vice versa, so now that we're, we're playing together, it's a really incredible experience for me, and I, I also get the chance to work with people like John Mayer and Alicia Keys and Beyonce, and just this new crop of great musicians. What is John Mayer like to write with? I know you've written a couple of songs with him. Well, John Mayer is a great writer, and he's just a very smart and amazingly talented individual. And we've become good friends as well, which is really the main thing. It's about chemistry with a musician, or with anybody, not just a musician, obviously. But, but he's very savvy, and he's very keen on what is important about his music, his product, his brand. So the writing that we've done together is different. Every every collaboration is different. The way that I collaborate with John is more like it comes out of what we call a free play, where we just play some stuff, basically like jamming, and we come up with some stuff, and then we'll come up with some music, and then he'll take the track or whatever and then write some lyrics over, as opposed to when I'm writing with Keith Richards. It'll be more of a collaboration where we not only come up with the music together, but then we'll write lyrics together. Or kind of with Megan, it's kind of a combination of that. It takes all takes on different forms. Sometimes I'll write a tune that I've written most of the lyrics for and whatever, but I need a bridge. And then I'll ask Megan, uh, do you have a bridge? Or, or, I mean, I've written with some great writers like Danny Korchmar, who's a great legendary guitarist, but legendary producer and writer. Great, great writer. I've learned a lot of stuff about writing from him. So I've been very fortunate to be around a lot of great writers. Working on Devils and Dust with Bruce Springsteen, before I played a single track, he gave me the book of the, of the lyrics, every lyric. 
devils and dust before I played a note. And he thought it was important for me to read the lyrics to the whole album before I played on it, which is very, very, very smart. And it gave me insight into what he was thinking and what his mindset was when, before we started recording. It was great. A lot of people have different ways of doing things, and I've been fortunate to be around a lot of different styles. My last question is open-ended. What would you, Steve Jordan, like to say to anyone who's listening to this interview? I'd like to say to, for everyone to stay positive. There are a lot of things out there that can lead you to think otherwise, but we're living in a, a very fascinating point in time here. We can continue to go forward and uh, focus on the things that will make this society of ours better, but the choice is ours. There are a lot of things that make people think smaller than they have to. We really go back to the mode of thought of helping one another and not being as selfish as, as we be, have become. The world will be a better place. I'm very fortunate and blessed to be a musician because music is a universal language. So I can go all over the world and spread the, the good share of music. And as you can see, that cuts across every kind of racial, cultural, social, political line. And that's the great thing about music. So I like to carry that torch like a lot of other artists do as well. For musicians and artists, that's our job. Our job is to, to carry that torch and to, and to pass on goodwill. And so that, that's what I like to do, and I like to do that more often. I look forward to every opportunity to do that. Mr. Jordan, it's been a great pleasure to do this interview. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Perhaps I will hear you perform in Atlanta. I know that the Verbs are putting together a small tour to do something maybe at the end of the year. And then next year, I'll be doing some work with some uh, some legendary notable guitar players, and I'll leave it at that. Godspeed. All right, thank you. And thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com Click on Support the Show And thanks to everyone who contributes Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano The Entertainer Written by Scott Joplin End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano The traditional song Corina Corina Your announcer is Dan Gold Hey, that's me! The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.